Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Urban Decay. Well, we're going to talk about urban decay and urban uh, planning here coming up a little bit later in the program with Richard Florida. But October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Now, let me just give you some numbers to let you know why we all should be reminded about breast cancer. Some 246,000 Americans are expected to be diagnosed with breast cancer in 2016. About 40,000 will die from it. Real Men Wear Pink is a breast cancer awareness researching funding campaign in the Harrisburg area. We're joined today by two participants, Brant Woodward and Joe Hendricks of Real Men Wear Pink of Harrisburg. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And not surprisingly, they both are wearing pink, as am I today, wearing my pink shirt So, for, for breast cancer awareness. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, the, the, the title gets uh, a lot of attention. It's kind of a catchy title, Real Men Wear Pink. Uh, what is Real Men Wear Pink? Either one of you can talk. It's, it's fine. Okay, I'll take that. <laughs> <clears throat> so it's a new initiative from the American Cancer Society, and it's supporting our Making Strides Against Breast Cancer event here in Harrisburg. But it's happening all across the country and in uh, many, many markets. And it's, it's a brand-new effort where men, community leaders, are, uh, are taking a stand, and they're, they're um, stepping up, and they're raising awareness and funds to fight breast cancer. Uh, through their networks, and 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 um, it's really taking off across the country, and it's been a, a great program for us so far. Now, this is the first time here in Central Pennsylvania, right? Correct. Yes, and it's the first uh, first time in in uh, many places across the country. Yes. Mm-hmm. Where, where did the idea develop? Where did it come up? Uh, where did they come up with it? So, like many of uh, the American Cancer Society programs, it started out with just a small group of volunteers, actually in the uh, southeast part of the co- country, and and um, Birmingham, Alabama, New Orleans area, where they uh, men wanted to make an impact. They uh, were uh, caregivers uh, to to significant others, and 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 wanted to see where they could uh, they could make an impact in the fight against breast cancer. And so it was a group of volunteers that came together and said, "We're gonna." We're going to come together and we're going to raise money for this important cause. And it uh, uh, also, like many programs of the American Cancer Society, it, uh, uh, it was a great idea and it spread across the country. Mm-hmm. Joe, you know, uh, something Brent just mentioned, uh, October being Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Just yesterday, uh, there was the it's become an annual thing now at the state capitol where the fountain of the state capitol has pink water for awareness it's become a big thing i mean in mm-hmm. national football like college football you have athletes who are wearing pink for breast cancer awareness uh, a lot of people in our society are making the effort for breast cancer awareness but most of the time women are behind it i mean i think of the pennsylvania breast cancer coalitions mostly women mm-hmm. um you know some other organizations but why men you know it, it it affected me personally so that's kind of why i got involved back in 2013 uh, my mother mary henriques passed away of breast cancer she is one of nine uh had not eight other brothers and sisters uh, four of them have been diagnosed with cancer mm-hmm. uh, my grandfather her her father actually passed away of cancer. So it decided, uh, you know, for me, it was just I needed to stand up and do something. I needed to fight for her. Uh, In 2013, when I lost her, it was devastating. So it was like, what can I do? So I devoted myself to the American Cancer Society. Uh, They share the same passion that I do to help try to fight cancer and end it. Um, 
I come across it in my career as well. I'm a financial advisor for Conti Wealth Advisors, but we deal with clients in all different stages of life. But I realize how wide-reaching this disease is. It affects clients, whether it's indirectly or directly, and it changes everything. I mean, it's absolutely devastating at times where we have to go in and make changes and put something together that we didn't expect, didn't anticipate. So for me, uh, the passion and the fire kind of comes through that, saying, I want to do something about this, and what can I do? So I got involved many years ago with the American Cancer Society, and this Real Men Wear Pink came up, and I jumped on it. I was like, this is a great idea. There's 14 of us doing it, Brant and myself, and we're like, let's let's make a difference if we can. Tell me about your mom. Uh, yeah, you're putting me on the spot. Um, <laughs> my mom was 62. Uh, she was diagnosed and well, first it started out with uterine cancer uh, back in 2001. Uh, we thought we hit the 10 year anniversary, uh, so we hit 2011. And then uh, we found out that she had uh, another form of cancer, so bladder cancer came back. After bladder cancer, then it moved into breast cancer. Uh, so back in 2011, uh, she let us know, I have a brother and a sister, uh, that she, w she had uh, breast cancer, and it was a hard struggle. I mean. Um, more or less on my sister than myself. I left originally from Connecticut, uh, so unfortunately for me to get up and down there was a little bit difficult. My brother's down in DC, uh, so it was, it was difficult at the time, so my, real, my sister really took on the brunt of uh, helping with, uh, with my mother, but it was difficult to see. Uh, I still remember many a days sitting in, uh, talking with her, also going into the hospital for chemo sessions, and that's where it really hit me. I mean, when you sit in the room, and they're getting chemo, and you're actually uh, watching other people and what stage they are in, uh, kind of really puts things in, things in perspective. From what you just uh, described, it, uh, it sounds like you know you do have a family history, uh, and you said that your sister, it uh, you know that she had a kind of a big role because she was a bit of a caretaker, but. I mean, as a, as a family, yes, obviously you're concerned about your mother and your other family members who have been diagnosed, but do you also think about your future, your, I don't know if you have any daughters, but your sister thinking about it as well? Absolutely. Uh, I actually have three daughters. So now I have my wife and three daughters to worry about as well with breast cancer. Uh, my sister's very concerned. Uh, she's beginning to be screened as is, as is my wife, uh, just getting checked. Uh, I've actually been checked uh, for different types of cancer just because of the family history uh, earlier in my life than I needed to be. A lot of things they push off until you're age 50, I'm 39, and I started checking at 37 when this whole thing happened. So uh, again, I think it's bringing awareness to a lot of people that what ACS is trying to do, the American Cancer Society, is notifying people that if you have some history like myself in your family, go out and get checked, get screened. Do something about it before it's too late or before you come across something that might not be fixable. So it's, again, bringing up awareness as much as we can do. Jim, uh, Jim sorry. Brian, why did you get involved? Well, I actually work for the American Cancer Society. <clears throat> and so uh, I have an opportunity to get involved in a lot of efforts. And I felt like um, when, when our staff approached me about it, this was something new, innovative, exciting, and uh, and I and I really did get excited about about uh, make the the impact that we could make and the and the and this new program, um, and then professionally I I get to see the work that we do every day um, and I and I I consider myself so lucky to be able to 
see the difference that we're making. So whether that's the research breakthroughs, uh, discoveries of drugs like tamoxifen and Herceptin that led to that that was um, funded by the American Cancer Society very very early on, not not when it was a proven drug and we threw some money at it, but when these were young investigators with with new ideas and. Um, and, and nobody else was funding them, that's when the American Cancer Society took a, a shot at them. So whether it's the research side or the direct patient services impact that we make, drive, just simply driving um, patients to treatment um, uh, to overcome barriers that they may have uh, uh, to, to, to literally have their lives saved. And so um, uh, seeing that every day um, and, and then our staff saying, hey, would you, this is a new program, would you, would you step up and be a part of it? Um, it was a very easy yes. And uh, one other thing, real quick, I, I, I also have one daughter, and um, our family has certainly been impacted by cancer, and I don't ever want her to hear those words. And so uh, anything I can do to make an impact, uh, I will. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about uh, specifically about Real Men Wear Pink and uh, you know how the program works, where the money goes to, and that kind of thing. But you know, this, this conversation is interesting because I think it's when we're talking about awareness, people need to be reminded from time to time. I mean, we had a project here at WITF at one time uh, that, and, w and we focused on cancer. And one of the reasons that we did is because everyone, just as you said, Brian. Everyone is touched by it. There is not a family in America that can say that, oh, there's no one in our family that has had cancer. Everyone has been touched by it, whether it's immediate family, an aunt, an uncle, a cousin, or maybe even friends. But everyone has been touched on it, has been touched by it, I should say. Now, Brant, something you just mentioned, and you touched on this a little bit, but we have had some some actually some pretty extensive and uh, uh, moves made and uh, improvements progress made in uh, fighting breast cancer over the last 30 years or so I mean if you look at the numbers I gave those numbers right up front of the number of people who are diagnosed each year the number of people who die each year but at the same time those numbers okay maybe not the diagnosis but the deaths are down and the way people can be treated it used to be that just like Joe described, someone was diagnosed with cancer. You hear, hear that word, people would think that's a death sentence. Yeah. That uh, you know, I'm not going to survive this. And that's not the case today. What are some of the improvements? Because all the time we have people who are raising money for research, raising money for different reasons. And I think that sometimes people wonder, well, where does that money go? And have we seen anything tangible as a result of that money? What's happened in the past 20, 30 years, improvements, progress we've made in fighting cancer? Yeah, we absolutely have seen the impact that we're making and not only research, but the awareness. And, and Joe mentions how, how important screening is. So between the research and the treatment of, of breast cancer and other cancers and um, and the treatment, we, we are making a, a demonstrable impact. It's um, uh, breast cancer um, death rates are, are down 36 percent since 1989. Um, so that's that's cutting that uh, in a third. That's not enough, by the way. We need to continue funding uh, uh, the treatment and, and the research. But uh, but we have made a, a significant impact of 36 percent. And when what we also see is that the chances 
of surviving breast cancer have uh, certainly uh, risen with earlier stage diagnosis, and that's that's really due to the screening and the messaging and the and the and the important conversations that we need to have with our doctors and be our own health advocates um, to uh, to find out what is best for the patient as far as uh, as far as screening and making sure that those things happen and those conversations are 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 critical and the message is getting out and the funding also. Uh, for communities that uh, that maybe don't have that primary care physician, people that, that need to get that message. Uh, you mentioned the NFL earlier, and that's a partnership with the American Cancer Society. And the funds raised by the NFL actually goes to screening promotion in communities um, uh, that that uh, where screening rates are low. And so we're uh, we're reaching new audiences, and we'll continue to see. Uh, see that death rate decline. Where are those areas where screening rates? Are? I mean, from what you described, you're talking about rural areas that rural where... areas, lower socioeconomic uh, uh, areas that uh, that that access to care and access to basic uh, uh, basic physician services just isn't there. People don't take advantage of it. So we work a lot with uh, uh, primary uh, federally qualified uh, health centers. Uh, uh, with uh, community outreach grants, where we are reaching out to the to those uh, women that need to be screened, and 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 it's uh, getting them into screening. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, part of the Affordable Care Act is that a mammogram is is covered, and I, I haven't seen the numbers. Maybe you have, but uh, I would assume that many more women and men. I mean, because we, we often associate breast cancer with women, and the great majority of those diagnosed with breast cancer are women, but there are men who are, are diagnosed with uh, breast cancer. But I haven't seen the numbers, but I would assume that there are more people who are being screened, are getting uh, mammograms uh, as a result of the Affordable Care Act. Question, though, that I do have when we're talking about uh, some of the progress that has been made. I saw a story on uh, one of the local uh, TV station news just a couple weeks ago about 3D mammograms and how they can be much more accurate than just a you know, baseline mammogram. Uh, do, do the two of you have anything to say about that? I, yeah, this is where uh, th- this is where we are not the the medical experts, right, and, what right. I, and, I, um, and I shouldn't ask you a medical. No, question. no, it's 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 absolutely fine. Um, and what I can say is, these developments of um, of better diagnostic tools, um, you know, they conti- it continues to get better and more precise, and uh, and and that's leading to earlier diagnosis and and that uh, uh, and, and increased survival rates. Um, you know the efficacy of the the 3D mammogram versus others probably not for me to say at this point, but um, but certainly uh, the 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 way that we are diagnosing cancers is um, uh, and, and the earlier stages is due to the developments of things like that. And it's so important. I mean, w- when you look at the numbers, over 11,000 women will be diagnosed this year with 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 breast cancer in, in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Right. Yeah, and right. two two thousand of them could die of the disease. So those numbers are just too large. I mean, we got to do something. There's got to be something out there that we can find. Uh, this organization, again, is a terrific organization that focuses on not only just helping the patients or helping the, uh, the, the patients with breast cancer, but also making them feel comfortable, like the Hope Lodge that they have up in Hershey. If you can't receive treatment where you're located, they'll actually let you stay, you and your family, at a hotel for a couple of days while you're getting treatment in in, uh, in Hershey. So they go in above and beyond, and again, that's why I really 
devoted myself to them and saying this is a terrific organization and I want to make sure everybody else hears about it as well. All right, so let's talk about uh, how they can hear about it. Uh, what the two of you are doing with uh, 12 of your, your colleagues, Real Men Wear Pink. Uh, uh, you know, you touched on it a little bit, but uh, Brent, what is it? Uh, describe the, the, the program, the campaign, if you would. So it's just, uh, it's just uh, men in the community, uh, community leaders um, who are reaching out to their uh, friends, colleagues, and others um, sharing sharing uh, awareness and raising funds bottom line is it, it takes money to have these advances and so we've each committed to raising a minimum of, of $2,500 to support the Making Strides event uh, in Harrisburg and Making Strides is an event that is it's one of the largest Making Strides against breast cancer events in the country um, and, and it's an amazing event and um, it's uh, and so we're doing our part. We're gonna we're gonna be out there uh, su- supporting the event. We're gonna raise funds and uh, prior to it. And actually, Joe uh, Joe is gonna be uh, tonight um, gonna be directly supporting our efforts with uh, one of our other uh, partners. So Joe, talk yeah. about that. Myself and Matt Barcaro are gonna be celebrity bartending uh, at Channel Eight. Yeah, yes, at uh, Rubicon in Harrisburg from five to seven. Uh, Rubicon's been great. They're gonna donate twenty percent of your bill towards the American Cancer Society. So come on out, uh, support a great cause. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I've kind of promised uh, people that I've been working with that if I hit my twenty five hundred, I'll. My wife's kind of been pushing me. She's like, "Do you want a pink tutu?" And I was like, <laughs> "My my girls thought it was hilarious, and they're no, like, absolutely, you should do that." Well, the white brought it but, up, so you know. <laughs> uh, I'll I'll wear the pink tutu if we hit the twenty five hundred. <laughs> if myself and if we hit our goal, I think we're we're twenty thousand. We got thirty five thousand. Uh, we only have fifteen thousand more to go. Uh, the goal is thirty five, so I think we we have a good push. Um, you, but, you realize, of course, since you've said this on the air yeah. in front of thousands of people, that if you have to wear that pink tutu, that you have to send a picture and we put it on our website. You know what? If it, if it spreads awareness, I definitely will do it. I'll do it. <laughs> and that's the level of commitment that you see that, from that all that of these is. guys. Yeah. It's a pretty that amazing is. group of uh, gentlemen that have <laughs> taken this on and gone above and beyond. So, okay, you mentioned uh, the celebrity bartending tonight, but what other ways... Uh, are you raising money? I mean, I'm sure there are people out there say, oh, this is a great cause. I would like to uh, uh, help out with this. But how can they can they, can they do that other than going to, uh, to the bar tonight? They can visit our website. Uh, we're at makingstrideswalk.org slash realmenharrisburgpa. Or they can give a call in. They can call in their donations to 534-1487. Well, gentlemen, I want to thank you very much uh, for being with us. Uh, the the uh, campaign is Real Men Wear Pink. I understand that the, the two of you and the other 12 participants are wearing pink every day during the month of October? Yes. We're doing our best. Yeah, Absolutely. we're trying. Yeah. <laughs> How do you get all that pink? Well, sometimes, you know, sometimes the bracelet comes in handy. That's right. Uh, there's only pin, so many pink this shirts. This lapel pin is So the lapel pin counts. <laughs> Everything counts. I thought it was just clothing that uh, you had to do every day. We have we, a gentleman with a pink jacket, uh, a pink suit jacket that he's wearing every day. So we're going That's above and beyond. Steve Mancuso from... Uh, 
from Hershey Med is uh, is leading our efforts right now in fundraising, and he is uh, he's going all out in the pink. <laughs> We're having fun with it. Well, if you have a pink jacket to wear with ties and everything else, and you you both, I can't tell Joe in the lights what color your uh, pink shirt, pink tie. Okay, all right. I I, I see that Brand has a, a pink shirt, pink tie, but is that a navy jacket? I can't tell. Uh, it's a gray. It's a gray. See, in lights, I can't tell. <laughs> so, gentlemen, I want to thank you very much for for being with us today, and good luck. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. It is WITF's fall fundraising campaign. I'm joined by WITF's multimedia news director, Tim Lambert, to tell us about uh, what's going on here at WITF and to ask you to uh, how much you value Smart Talk and uh, WITF. Tim, take it away. Thank you, Scott. And yes, if you uh, are a regular Smart Talk listener and you uh, enjoy the wide variety of topics you hear each and every day, we hope that you make a contribution right now in support of Smart Talk. And we still have a dollar-for-dollar match going on for contributions of $100 or more. So if you make that call right now at 1-800-233-9483 or if you go online to witf.org, you can uh, make that contribution of $10 a month, of $20 a month, of a dollar a day. Uh, you can also become a Premier Circle member if you have been uh, thinking about increasing your your gift to a leadership level among our donors, and that's a contribution of $1,200 for a year or $100 a month. And if you do that right now, you'll be able to take part in the attend, I should say, the Premier Circle dinner we have in November, and our old friend Scott Detcher, who's with the NPR politics team right now, assigned to cover the Donald Trump campaign. Uh, he will be the featured speaker, and he will fill us in. The election will be over, and he'll trade a lot of war stories of, of what he's uh, been through on the trail. But, um, you know, Scott's been on Smart Talk through the years as well, and uh, a number of guests that you've heard uh, on the show have uh, have gone on to, uh, to bigger and better things as well. So we hope that uh, that is something that you appreciate. You make that contribution now at WITF.org. We have a goal of, it looks like, let me turn the page right, it looks like we have a goal of $200 to reach before 10 o'clock, and we hope that uh, that uh, very modest goal, we can reach that in no time at all. Well, you know, Tim, I think today's show is a good example of the variety that uh, we try to present on Smart Talk. Talking about breast cancer awareness in the first part, uh, we're going to be on the air with uh, WITF's Capitol Bureau Chief Katie Meyer in just a few minutes, uh, who covered both the Donald Trump uh, rally in Lancaster County Saturday night, Hillary Clinton in Harrisburg yesterday, talking about uh, what she heard at those. And then, you know, we're going to be talking a little bit about urban planning and about uh, planning for success successful cities a little bit later in the program as well. So that variety is the kind of thing that we do try to bring to Smart Talk every day. And actually, it covers the whole gamut on the station, on WITF, that we're constantly looking for the things that are important in the community. Yeah, and absolutely. And, you know, it's funny, is spending time at the gym, you know, they'll always have all the TVs on the ESPN or CNN and Fox News and MSNBC and all that. So I keep my eye on what's going on in the news while I'm there. And 
and you won't see much discussion about international issues. You won't see much discussion that is a discussion. It's just people yelling back and forth. They're talking points because they want to reach those people who have that narrow world view, and it doesn't matter what the other side says. I just want to believe what this person is telling me because that's the side that I'm on. And that's just not how we do things, especially on Smart Talk. Uh, we try to have a civic conversation, a civic dialogue, and, and a civil, I should say, as well. We want to keep things, you know, if you uh, disagree with each other, that's okay. I mean, we've heard that on Morning Edition this week with voters in Arizona. Last week, Steve Inskeep did something similar uh, with voters uh, in another state. So, um, you know, we always look to make sure that you understand both sides of an issue and where people are coming from. But it's not something that it's going to be this, uh, you know, these opposing sides just crashing into each other and yelling at each other. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, Scott Detrow appearing uh, here in, in Harrisburg and has been on uh, Smart Talk uh, m- many, many times, uh, even before he left for the bright lights of the big city. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, we will be doing a lot starting next week. I mean, we've already done a lot to begin with, but uh, much of what we do over the next three to four weeks before Election Day will have to do with the elections because, you know, I, I've said this to you many times, Tim, and you, you're well aware of it, but this presidential race in particular has been dominating the news cycles, mm-hmm. especially on uh, in the national uh, newspapers, twenty-four hour news channels, even social media, uh, insanity it is yeah. dominating. Yeah. And what gets left behind sometimes are some of the other offices where candidates are running, and many of those offices have a di- more of a direct impact on you know the people out there listening than do the president of the United States. We know that this is the, you know this is going to be the leader of our country. It's obviously very, very important. Mm-hmm. But one of the things we're going to be doing on Smart Talk over the next few weeks, talking to congressional candidates, uh, hopefully talking to the candidates for attorney general, talking to the U.S. Senate candidates. Um, you know, there are a lot of candidates. This is a big election year. The row offices, of course. Absolutely. The absolutely. And especially well, attorney general, for example, think about the attorney general's office and what's happened over the past three years in that office and how much news it's made. So those candidates, I think, you know, that's an office that probably should get a little more scrutiny this year than what it has in the past during the election cycle. But that is very important to us at WITF. We know it's very important to you, the listener out there, you central Pennsylvanians. So that's something we'll be doing over the next few weeks as well. Yeah. And, and if that's what uh, you want to hear more and more of, uh, please make a contribution now, whether it's $10 a month or $20 a month. Could be a dollar a day, could be $30 a month, 1-800-233-9483, or go online to WITF.org. Tim, thank you very much for being with us. I'll talk to you a little bit later in the program. All right. All right. Uh, speaking of uh, politics and uh, speaking of the election, as you know, Pennsylvania is an important state in next month's election. And think about that, next month's election. Finally, it is almost here. Those 20 electoral votes could be key to a victory for Democrat Hillary Clinton, but especially Republican Donald Trump. So many people have said that Donald Trump cannot win the election unless he wins Pennsylvania and the 20 electoral votes. Both Trump and Clinton have rallied in the mid-state over the past five days. WITF's Capitol Bureau Chief Katie Meyer covered Trump in Lancaster County, uh, Mannheim on Saturday, and Clinton in Harrisburg yesterday. Katie, welcome to the program. 
Hi, Scott. Happy to be here. All right. So let's talk a little bit about what you heard. Um, and I'll do this chronologically. Let's start with uh, Donald Trump in uh, Mannheim. Actually, it's not Mannheim. It's a Mannheim address, but Spooky Nook Sports uh, right there along Route 283 in Lancaster County. Um, what did you hear that uh, kind of stuck out to you on uh, Saturday night? Sure. So I think, I mean, it's important to note that going into this, Trump had had not a great week uh, in the media and in the polls either. Uh, polls that have, were coming out as the rally was going on and a little bit after show him down by you know, nine points, 10 points. I think he's down by an average of five and a half points in Pennsylvania right now. So, so that's sort of the um, the where he's coming in. And so what you're hearing in um, Trump's rallies is, you know, what you hear at most Trump rallies, which is, you know, a lot of rowdiness, a lot of yelling, a lot of spirit. It's a very enthusiastic crowd. It always is. But this rally, this specific one, I think, uh, stuck out to me, first of all, for the size. There were about 6,000 people there, and uh, more were turned away at the door. And um, also just for how sort of off-book Trump was, um, he's been doing a pretty good job staying on message lately, but this whole rally, I mean, he went really um, – he covered a lot of different topics. Uh, one of the big quotes that came out of this was him sort of insinuating that Hillary Clinton might not be faithful to her husband. That was sort of an aside he made. He made a lot of aspersions, you know, on her health and on her stamina. And I think one of the important things for a Pennsylvania context that he brought up was that he told people to watch their polling places. This is something – that he's been bringing up for a couple of months now, um, you know, that the idea that the Pennsylvania vote, that there might be cheating going on. He's used that word cheating a lot. And so he really, he was telling people to watch their polling places to go out. And that is, again, not legal in Pennsylvania. Um, it's sort of thought to be a risk of voter intimidation. Um, there are official poll watchers that can come out. So this, you know, it's sort of a it's a lot. It's a cornucopia of different things at a Donald Trump rally, but those are the things that I think stuck out and are going to continue to be talked about. Now we have uh, sound from both candidates' right. rallies. Uh, the one with Trump. What, what's he talking about? Kind of, uh, you know, set the background for us. Sure. So again, this is sort of him saying, you know, in Pennsylvania, the vote might not be secure. Um, and he's been saying this a lot. He said, uh, I think last month, that the only way I'll lose Pennsylvania is if she cheats. All right, so let's and, go on. Yeah, let's, yeah. You've got to get your friends, and you've got to get everybody you know, and you've got to watch your polling booths, because I hear too many stories about Pennsylvania. What stories yeah. about Pennsylvania? Did he give any specifics? He didn't give any specifics, and um, I think there have been some stories that have come out from Pennsylvania. Um, specifically, I mean, a lot of these things come from more local elections. There have been isolated incidents of people um, casting extra votes, but there's never been any large-scale um, fraud, especially for a presidential election, and that's sort of what's been coming out. And I, I will say Trump's comments and other things that have been covered you know, off and on in the media, um, have sort of created this feeling in Pennsylvania that we should be worried about the vote. And um, actually, um, House committee, the House uh, Senate committee, or I'm sorry, no, um, a committee yesterday held a hearing about, um, you know, election safety and what's going on in the polls. And they heard from a lot of different people asking, you know, you know, are the votes safe? And the overwhelming conclusion was, Yes, there's no real foreseeable risk 
here. But I think people are still concerned, and I do think Donald Trump has played a big role in that. Mm. You know, something else that he said, and this you're right, the, this appearance by Trump on Saturday in Lancaster County seemed to get more attention that, than most of the rallies because of some of the things that he did say. Something else that you didn't mention, but, I mean, he went as far as saying that he thought that uh, Hillary Clinton was crazy. He did say that, yeah, sort of the casting aspersions on her health and mental health as well. Um, and, yeah, I think that was sort of we saw, you know, full-fledged, off-the-books Trump that night. And, you know, for some context, the whole rally was a little bit uh, disorganized. Trump was two hours late. Um, they had said that his helicopter was unable to land in the rain. It was raining. But meanwhile, you've got 6,000 people in this hot like stadium thing with no seats or anything. And so it really did. It was sort of a, a very charged atmosphere. And again, Trump is someone who feeds off of a crowd. So I think that might have definitely played into it. Um, you mentioned that he was a couple hours late. Now, yeah. this was right after. And again, a lot of this is speculation. And I hate to speculate. I know you can't speculate as well, but I'll ask you a question about it. But this was right after the New York Times came out with their story about, uh, you know, his taxes, that he lost $915 million in 1995 and probably didn't pay taxes, federal taxes, over the ne next two decades. I, again, I can't ask you to speculate. We can't speculate. We don't speculate on this program. But the question I will ask is whether he had, he had addressed the tax issue at all, because it did come up during the, the debate last week. Sure. So, no, the short answer to that is no, he did not address it. Um, the story, the New York Times story broke that night. I think it was just about like a little bit before nine o'clock and Trump went on a little bit after nine. So it uh, definitely was out there. I, I got an alert about it, Hi. but um, Trump didn't address it. And I also I did talk to a lot of rally goers on the way out. Um, cell service wasn't great in there. So I think a lot of them had not seen that story, but people did not seem to care over much. And obviously these are you know, some very ardent Trump supporters, but uh, it didn't make a huge impact on his base, which I think is notable, to say the least. All right, let's talk about Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton was at the Zembo uh, Shrine yesterday in, in Harrisburg. What was your takeaway from that appearance? Sure. So I think, um, I mean, we've talked about Donald Trump's sort of, I think the word abysmal is kind of strong, but it was a bad week in the media and in the polls for him. And Hillary Clinton you know, being on the other side seemed thrilled. I mean, I've never seen a Hillary Clinton rally where she's been in such good spirits. Um, I've been to less of them than I've been to Trump rallies. She hasn't been around as much. But that being said, she had a lot of material to work with. Um, so, she, I mean, you saw her bringing up, obviously, Trump's taxes. You saw her sort of casting aspersions on him for um, outsourcing, you know, labor and bringing in cheaper materials from China, building materials. And I think... You know, from a Pennsylvania standpoint, that is sort of a strong argument because one of Donald Trump's main arguments and one of Hillary Clinton's main arguments is, you know, manufacturing has gone by the wayside in Pennsylvania and, you know, we need to bring back middle class, working class jobs. And so those are, I mean, those are some strong points that Clinton can make. And she was getting, it was a much smaller rally there at uh, the Shrine than Trump's was. But uh, she had a solid, um, I think, over 1,500 people there. And there were some big cheers, a lot of enthusiasm, a different tenor than a Trump rally for sure. But uh, nevertheless, I think it was 
It was a strong showing for Hillary Clinton. We, we do have uh, some sound from that rally as well. Set this up, yeah. if you would, Katie. Sure. So this was um, Hillary Clinton referencing something that came out this week. It's something that Trump said back in uh, 2009. Um, he was quoted, and this is, I mean, this is something he did say, um, as saying that uh, the housing market crash was a good investment opportunity. Like, this was a good time for him to buy. It was a good financial situation for him. I will sort of temper that and say Trump never said, I want people to lose their housing or anything like that. So that should be noted. But, you know, it, it was a questionable statement to make, I think, especially in the context of how much damage that is has done. So that's what Clinton was getting at here. Now, who says that? Who wants that to happen? Somebody who is so out of touch with what's going on in America, living in his big tower, he has no idea what's happening. You know, Katie, obviously the tone of this campaign has, has changed here in the last few weeks, and part of it has been driven by the debate last week. But Donald Trump has become the issue in the campaign. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's any question of that. And I mean, you can hear it in our conversation whenever we talk about the campaign. It all just it has to go back to Trump. And, you know, that's that's not good for Trump. Um, it's very good for Hillary Clinton, because I think one of the things we've heard a lot in this campaign is like the less that you're in the media, the better you're going to do. Hillary Clinton's poll numbers are higher when she's not the main story. When, you know, something about her emails is breaking or there's questioning about the Clinton Foundation, then her poll numbers go down. Trump climbs a little bit. But overwhelmingly, we're seeing, yeah, when Donald Trump is driving the conversation, it's not great for him. I guess what I'm naive in thinking this, that uh, uh, that voters want to hear about issues and want to hear about uh, what the candidates will do uh, once they become president and how they plan to improve the, the country. Call me naive if I am. Um, well, you know, I think that's always something that we say we want. I mean, clearly looking at this election, we've, you know, people have been saying over and over, OK, but now we have to talk about the issues. We don't care about this, that and the other that they're name calling. We don't care about Rosie O'Donnell and Trump's feud, for instance. But, you know, I think to a certain extent, there is a part of all of us and there's a part of the American population specifically that does enjoy, you know, this tit for tat back and forth that they have. And I think you know, one of the good things, one of the examples I can show you of that is um, the hype over the debates. Um, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton's debate was sort of, you know, a Super Bowl type event. Uh, There's a ton of media hype. Uh, there was a ton of people tuning in. And, you know, you go into that expecting them to do, you know, quite a bit of name calling and maybe not such policy heavy discussion. And that's, I mean, essentially what we got. But then you come to last night's debate, the vice presidential debate, which I also watched, um, much less hype over that. And part of that, I think, is because, you know, these are two guys who are well regarded in policy. You know, Mike Pence and Tim Kaine, they're not such firebrands. And so it's just less exciting. And also, I mean, it's a vice presidential debate. <laughs> it's going to be less exciting. Yeah. But Katie Myers, WITF's Capitol Bureau Chief. Katie, thank you very much. And uh, the way Pennsylvania is going, I mean, the importance being placed on Pennsylvania, I think we probably will see these two candidates in the state again before uh, before November. 
I think we're certainly going to see him again. Thanks, Katie. WITF's election coverage is supported by the Harrisburg Law Office of Saul Ewing, LLP. All right, I want to change gears now. Uh, Urban decay seems like something one would hear in the 1970s. Millions of people, mostly white people, left cities for the suburbs. So did a lot of jobs, mainly manufacturing jobs. But in the three decades since, many cities have been trying to reinvent themselves. There have been success stories. Today's guest probably was ahead of his time for what the urban landscape should look like. Richard Florida has advocated for a creative class to make cities sustainable and successful. Urban theorist, author, and educator Richard Florida joins us on the phone now. Mr. Florida, thank you very much for being with us today. Hey, uh, thanks for uh, having me. You know, I spent nearly two decades of my life in the state of Pennsylvania in Pittsburgh, um, where I actually developed this theory. So it's, it's great to be talking to you. Right. Creative class. Who makes up this creative class? Well, you know, I, I think you really gave a great interview, a great introduction to this whole thing, this whole um, idea we're talking about, this trans urban transformation we're talking about. Um, 20 or 30 years ago, you know, cities like Harrisburg, Pittsburgh, Newark, New Jersey, where I was born, Detroit, Michigan, and many others were, were completely written off. They were being abandoned by industry, deindustrialized. You know, the previous commentator just talked about the loss of those good-paying, family-supporting manufacturing jobs, like my dad in a factory at a factory in New Jersey. But something began to happen, and I think the year uh, is about the year 2000. About the year 2000. We begin to see in America a movement of mainly younger people, mainly college grads, college-educated people, uh, and mainly more affluent people back to cities and urban centers. And, and of course, that, that, that goes like gangbusters in San Francisco and Boston and Washington, D.C. and New York. But it also happens in metro after metro, including Philadelphia and, and Pittsburgh and Harrisburg. Um, and so I think what has driven this is this group I dubbed the creative class. They're, they're not just highly educated people. They're people who work in science, technology, form companies. They're entrepreneurs. They're people who work in business and management, these knowledge-based professionals. You know, the word yuppie, a young urban professional. But also, you know, one of the, the key groups in this change are, are the artists the designers, the musicians who pioneer urban neighborhoods. So all together in America, we have about 40 million people. A third, think about this, though, a third of our workforce are members of this creative class, while today only 20% of the workforce are members of the, of the old working class, and 6% of the workforce, I think this is important for listeners, only 6% of our workforce today are engaged in making things in factories. So the creative class is kind of the, the big new class urban class of our time. Why are people in this group in a position to contribute to a successful city? Well, I, I think it's first, the first question is, why did they come back? I think there's several theories. One, they came back because there's more of the kind of jobs they do in the urban core, these knowledge jobs, these high-tech companies, you know, that used to be all out in the suburbs are now pouring back to urban centers in Manhattan and San Francisco in Pittsburgh and Toronto where I now live. The second factor is they want to keep their commute slow. Um, creative class people work with their mind. Time is money. And they want to minimize. They, they can't afford, you know, that one-and-a-half to two-hour brutal commute. The third factor is that increasingly urban areas are safer. They're cleaner. You know, when I lived in Pittsburgh, all the buildings were black. And by the time I left Pittsburgh, all the, all the buildings had been cleaned and were limestone color. 
crime is much lower in urban areas, particularly violent crime. In many, in some it's still up. Uh, but also the amenities urban areas have to offer, the restaurants, the nightlife, the cafes, the libraries, the museums, all of this creates a, a buzz, a factor that these, these creative class people are drawn to. So I think those three factors, and what happens, of course, is they're drawn into a city, it begins to change its character. It becomes more affluent, uh, it, it has more amenities, and the cycle feeds on itself. You have heard the criticisms, I'm sure, over the years, but what you're describing, there may be people listening and say, you know what, that sounds like an elitist kind of attitude. What do you say to that? Uh, well, I, I think that's kind of right. Um, the creative class is an elite group. It's highly paid. Its members make uh, in the high five figures or six figures. Uh, they tend to be highly well-educated, and they tend to be going into urban areas. And And the fact of the matter is, they've been a premier force in changing those neighborhoods. So it's very interesting listening to, to what you said about the decay of our cities and the comeback. You know, I'm, I'm working on a new book that I'm, that I'm going to talk about uh, when I come to visit. Um, my new book kind of comes full cycle. It, it's called The New Urban Crisis. That, in fact, the success of this back-to-the-city movement that I and others predicted some two decades ago, the very success of the movement of knowledge workers and creative people, yuppies, back to cities, has caused housing prices to become, you know, in many places, unaffordable for working people. The other thing that we've seen, and I think, I think the term elitist uh, is correct, our middle class has completely been eviscerated in America. So we have a, a third of our, our, our society that created, not just the 1%, a third of our society, the creative class doing well, while 66% of us fall further behind. And I think most importantly, as the middle class has dropped out, the great middle class neighborhoods like I grew up in, in New Jersey, in the city of Newark, and later in a working-class suburb called North Arlington, where my mom and dad could buy a home and have an American dream on a factory worker's salary, they've been annihilated. And our society has splintered into small areas of concentrated advantage in the city and in the suburbs. You know, in Pennsylvania, still our wealthiest areas in Pennsylvania are suburban, but much larger areas of concentrated economic distress and disadvantage. So I think, yes, the back-to-the-city movement has been successful, but it's actually produced a new kind of urban crisis, which is not a crisis of decay and poverty, but it's a, it's a crisis of a missing middle class, middle class mm. wholly divided society. By the way, you mentioned when you're visiting, and I just wanted to tell our listeners that Richard Florida will be speaking at Penn State Harrisburg next Wednesday, a week from today, as part of the PNC Thought Leader Lecture Series. And uh, he is the very first speaker as part of the PNC Thought Leader Lecture Series. So, uh, you know, we'll get some information on our website, WITF.org, if you are interested in, in attending that. You know, something I always have to bring up, though, when we, we talk about that decay, and you're right. I mean, the numbers show it. You you see it all the time that even in smaller cities that younger people, professionals are coming back to cities. But maybe what keeps more people from doing it now, you mentioned the crime is down, but schools, the quality of schools, especially once these young professionals have children, that still seems to be an issue in many cities. So no doubt that we, we not only have a class divide, but we have a demographic divide. And, and I mentioned the people who are coming back to cities are affluent, educated, knowledge workers, and young. In fact, a, an urban planner at the University of Waterloo says it's not just gentrification, it's youthification. 
you know, when you walk around some of these cities, they're, they're really quite childless, or, or at most, they're, I call them strollervilles. You'll see couples pushing infants in strollers, but as, as soon as that kid hits school age, boom, they're, they're, and, and, but they're not off to a conventional burb. You know, they're off to, and, and I have lots of family in Michigan, uh, these, these folks with the young children are off to more urban suburbs, uh, suburbs that have, may have a transit connection to downtown, typically have a mixed-use, what we call a mixed-use downtown with restaurants and cafes and shops. So it, it's very interesting what, what people are going for and where the premium is. But I think you're right. You know, I call it in America a barbell demography. What our cities now have are young people before you know, having school-aged children. And then we've seen a big wave of empty nesters, you know, people in their 50s and 60s who don't want that big house who are saying, and, and of course, I think this is important to add, their kids are moving back to the city, so they're also following their kids and helping their kids. You know, the kids are going to the bank of mom and dad to help them move to the city. So, But what's missing is families, and I think that's uniquely American, you know. Living in Toronto, I live in an urban neighborhood in the city, but because crime is, is lower... And because schools are funded not by the city but by the equivalent of the state, the province, and the urban schools are good, uh, Tor- Toronto has families and young people and old people in the city. But I do think in the American context, you know, unless you can afford uh, to pay a mint for private schools, I think the majority of people, once they have kids, go off to the burbs. Richard Florida is an urban theorist author, an educator, and again, it will be speaking to Penn State Harrisburg's uh, PNC Thought Leader Lecture Series next week. Mr. Florida, thank you very much for being with us today. Oh, it's going to be great to be back. You know, I spent a lot of time in Pennsylvania, a ton of time in Harrisburg, working on various commissions for then-Governor Ridge and Governor Rendell. So it's going to be great to be back and, and sharing my thoughts, not just on these phenomena, but how they're affecting Harrisburg and the central Pennsylvania region and Pennsylvania general. So thanks for having me. Thank you. It is WITF's fall fundraising campaign, and uh, Tim Lambert, who is a central Pennsylvania institution in himself, <laughs> uh, is with us. He's WITF's multimedia news director. You ever been called an institution? I have not. It makes me feel old. Well, you are getting up there, Tim. You know, <laughs> the beard is were, getting grayer. I by remember the... when you were just a young pup. <laughs> You know, it was a fascinating conversation you just had. Uh, always great to hear from from a Pittsburgh native, and and it made me think. I, I just picked up a book yesterday about uh, my hometown area, Aliquippa, and uh, how uh, Aliquippa sort of developed as the steel town, then into bust, and how it's struggled since then. And and but it has this like amazing reputation for developing football players. So it sort of looks at the relationship between how football, what means, what it means to the community now that the community sort of doesn't have its identity anymore. So it falls into what he was talking there. And Tony just, Dorsett was Aliquippa, wasn't he? Hopewell High School, but he was from Aliquippa. Okay, yep, all right. Yep, yep. So uh, those are the kind of conversations where if you're sitting there and you're thinking, man, I can relate to that, like that is something that uh, that you're a fan of and you want more of and you maybe want to invest in it right now and show your support financially for Smart Talk. Make that call at 1-800-233-9483 or go to WITF.com. Oregon. Those contributions uh, can be made in monthly gifts, monthly installments of $5 a month, $10 a month. You can make a contribution of a dollar a day. And it looks like we have about $320 left in the dollar for dollar match. Get in on that right now. See your your gift go even further at WITF.org or 1-800-233-9483.
Tim, thank you very much for being with us today. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, Janice Kaplan, and this is something that will really make you think, too. Uh, the summer read this year for WITF was the book The Gratitude Diaries. Interesting book. Janice Kaplan wrote it. She's a best-selling author, TV producer, and uh, her, how her life, I don't know if turnaround is the way to say it, but just by expressing gratitude, that is on tomorrow's program.